If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with this story that's become a symbol for the troubles in our health care system. Nearly one million people in this province do not have access to a family doctor. We've got a severe shortage of doctors and nurses. Hospital emergency rooms are being shut down in many B.C. communities. Unstaffed ambulances are parked and unused because there are not enough paramedics at a time of record demands on the system. Walk-in clinics have long wait times. Some of them have shut down. And now it comes to this, Janet and Michael Mort of Victoria, the senior citizen couple, their desperate search for a doctor to fill Michael's prescriptions. His wife, Janet, tried everything. Finally, she placed that desperate ad in the newspaper pleading for a doctor, any doctor to help her and her family. I've got Camille Curry standing by from BC Healthcare Matters to discuss this. First, have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. There's seizure medication in here, heart medication. Nine different prescriptions means a lot of pills. But with every passing day, the supply is dwindling. It's very scary to know that you don't have access to a doctor. Like many British Columbians, Michael Mort and his wife Janet had their doctor recently retire, leaving them to navigate BC's healthcare system on their own. They're very important. Their top priority, refilling these prescriptions. It's just been a terrible, frustrating, ongoing issue. Okay. The good news here is after they placed a $600 ad in the local paper pleading for a doctor, it worked. The BC, the Vancouver Island Health Authority now working with his family to get his prescriptions filled. Let's discuss this now with Camille Curry, founder of the BC Healthcare Matters campaign. And they're doing an awesome job on this issue, in my opinion. You may have seen their lawn signs around British Columbia, and they've got their online petition going, too. Camille, it's nice to have you on again. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for chatting with me this morning. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing this. Camille, when you hear this story, I mean, this story in the last 48 hours, I think, has really been a wake-up call for a lot of people in British Columbia about just how difficult this situation has, has become. I mean, Janet Mort, she says she tried everything to get her husband's prescriptions filled and it, it desperately decided to put this newspaper ad in. What do you think of this story? Well, you know, first off, I think when anybody hears that story, it's pretty impossible to not be filled with, you know, despair and disgust and even just anger and rage, right? Um, we all think of how that could have been our mother or our father. And so I think we should all be terrified about what this primary care crisis is doing to our system. Um, I do not doubt whatsoever that she did actually try absolutely everything and that nothing, you know, to no avail was she able to find the solutions to their problem because it's a story we do keep hearing from more um, individuals and, you know, primarily seniors in BC. So 
There are a ton of seniors in BC right now with no family doctor. They have no means to transportation. Many of them have very limited or no family support. And they're telling us about how incredibly terrified they are because they don't necessarily, you know, the other thing we have to consider is that they don't necessarily have the electronic skills um, that are required to, say, use even telehealth or to look up wait times um, before they venture out to try to and get into walk-in clinics. So they don't even have, you know, they don't even have the ability to do the Dr. Google either, like many individuals do so the fear is real yeah and she said that she tried everything like a lot of the stuff that you just described there she said she tried local walk-in clinics was having difficulty getting in there tried phoning 811 which is the the bc health information line uh, tried to get a doctor online went to the find a doctor website couldn't work that didn't work went to mm-hmm. a, even went to a hospital emergency room Mm-hmm. You know, which I guess is a desperate effort to try and get prescriptions filled. But, you know, is that a familiar story to you? Like, are you hearing that a lot? We really are, you know, and it's it's the cascading effects from it, right? And the other thing that we're hearing about from those individuals, you know, like we keep saying, it's the despair. So it's also that people get to a certain point where all of a sudden they begin to actually not even seek out help anymore because it's just so hard and so impossible. And so, you know, sometimes we see individuals, they share their story with us, and I can tell they're playing the guilt game, right? They're asking themselves, am I sick enough to need to drive to the next town? Am I sick enough to warrant an ER's, ER doctor's time? And um, there are people out there that will not seek out help or advocate for their own needs because they don't want to become a burden on an already overburdened system. Right. And so that's incredibly, you know, terrifying to hear because every life matters. Absolutely. I'm speaking to Camille Curry from BC Healthcare Matters. Let's listen to a little more here of Michael and Janet Mort speaking to Global News. And you'll hear them here sort of calling out Health Minister Adrian Dix, like calling out the, the, the government to fix the problem. Let's have a listen here. Put one of your family that you love in my circumstances and watch them try like I've tried for the last six months and then ask yourself if it's working well enough. You are responsible for fixing this problem. Okay, that just breaks your heart listening to her. You can you can hear the desperation in her voice that she tried so hard to get these prescriptions filled. Camille, what do you think? Yeah, um, you know, I think we've been saying for months that the taxpayers deserve to know where funding for UPCCs are going and what the health minister is going to do. So I share their um, anxiety and their frustration about not seeing any action taking place. And, you know, seeing our health critic Shirley Bond finally press forward on this line of questioning and requesting audits and even requesting that the health minister step down. I think that, you know, many British Columbians are behind those efforts. Um we have two like huge issues in our province right now, right? We have affordability and we have health care. And every day yeah. we see how much these are linked. And people are struggling. If they can't take a day off of work to go and find the health care that they need, lives will be lost. People will continue to die. And the despair and the fear is so real right now. This situation is beyond dire right now. So we want people to keep sharing their stories because it's having an impact and it yeah. will bring about the change we need. Yeah, for Janet Mort, for her story, she says that this was a last gasp effort here, this newspaper ad pleading for any doctor to help her. She said the ad cost $600 to place an ad in the paper. And guess what? Well, it worked. The Vancouver Island Health Authority 
stepped up yesterday, said they're working now with his family to help them. Let's have a listen to what they had to say here. This is Jamie Bramman, who is the Vice President of Communications for Vancouver Island Health. Let's have a listen. Our health authority is reaching out to the family today to learn more about the the needs of the family and how the health authority and the system might be able to provide interim supports while they continue to look for longitudinal care. Okay, Camille Curry, I mean, this family getting some help now, but not everyone has $600 to put a newspaper ad in the paper. Your thoughts? Absolutely, you know, and I'm I'm grateful that I'm glad that the health authority has stepped up and is trying to help this family. But that's just yeah. one family, and there are a million citizens in British Columbia right now. They're struggling like that, and what are they all supposed to do? They're all supposed to take out an ad to try to get this kind of service. I mean, we need measures put in place now, and the people need the support from our health ministry that they're not getting. So we need to see action. I'm glad Shirley Bond is taking some action now, and I hope that Premier Horgan will take action and let our next premier will take action because um we can't keep waiting and so i urge people what do you think should be job one like what do you think should be at the top of the to-do list here yeah so you know i think that shirley bond has taken the right step in requesting an audit to be done on the urgent primary care centers because we have suggested for quite a while that we aren't totally convinced that the system needs more money but we definitely believe that the system needs better choices to be made with the money that we already have in the current system. So let's look at the dollars and let's figure out how we can help the most individuals with that funding versus continuing to build more infrastructure, which will not help the families like this senior couple. Thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you very much, Mike, for having us. And please, I urge everyone to keep sharing their stories with us at BC Healthcare Matters because you matter and your story will make a difference. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about Prince Charles now. Latest troubles for the royal family here. Prince Charles getting slammed after his charity accepted a one million pound donation from the family of Osama bin Laden. Are you kidding me? This story is broken by the Sunday Times newspaper in the UK. It reported that the board of the UK charity that Charles operates tried to convince Charles not to take the money from the bin Laden family of Saudi Arabia. Uh, looks like they took, he took the money anyway back in 2013. Got Tom Freda standing by to discuss this now. Have a listen to this report first here from NBC News. Tonight, a Prince Charles charity is facing questions after a British newspaper report reveals they accepted a donation from the family of Osama bin Laden. The report, published by the Sunday Times, disclosing that the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund accepted a donation of one million pounds from Bakir and Shafiq bin Laden both half-brothers of Osama bin Laden, in 2013. The Sunday Times report alleges the prince brokered the donation despite appeals from advisors not to take the money. Okay, now the prince's charity, the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund, as it's known, has issued a statement on this story saying they did due diligence in accepting this donation. No laws were broken here. The bin Laden family has disowned Osama bin Laden long time ago. Even before 9-11, the family disowned him. So there's no laws or rules broken here, but it looks like it's a bad look, that's for sure. Let's discuss now with Tom Freda, Director of Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Hi, Tom. 
How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think of this story? Well, you're right. The optics are <laughs> not optimal here. Um, but, Mike, let me uh, just uh, give your listeners some quick context on the, and the basics of what Citizens for a Canadian Republic advocates. Because uh, this is a little bit of a deviation from what we normally do. Um, we generally don't comment on the personal goings-on of the royals. Uh, we first and foremost believe in removing our constitutional ties to the British monarchy as the last step in putting colonialism in the history books and making Canada completely independent. And for a model, all we have to do is look at Ireland or Barbados, where the governor general has been transformed into a ceremonial presidency. Uh, so uh, now in relation to the, con- to the subject at hand here, as I say, we don't, as a rule, pick on the royals themselves. Uh, we don't yeah. see them as an obstacle to this goal. Uh, right. They're people, after all, and they have a job to perform, uh, even if we don't think it's appropriate for Canada in the 21st century to retain a constitutional link to these people. Uh, instead, it's a few Canadians who stand in the in the way of this, not any member of the royal family. So we shy away from commenting on these kinds of things. But uh, And more importantly, uh, it's important to point out that it doesn't matter if royals are good people or bad people. The monarchy in itself in Canada is a colonial relic and needs to be retired. Okay, well, However, let's play we're commenting it. on the story. Yeah, uh, I'll just I'll just point out that we're commenting on this for a couple of reasons. First, okay. the obvious: taking money from the Bin Laden family, which is highly connected to an absolute monarchy that assassinates dissidents, oppresses women, publicly publicly beheads political prisoners. I mean, really, this should have set off alarm bells to anyone with an ounce of common sense. And this coming on the heels of Prince Charles accepting a suitcase full of millions in cash from the ex-Qatari prime minister last month, oh. you have to shake your head and wonder just how entitled does someone have to be to think there's not something highly suspicious about that. This, this, the optics are totally wrong. And if any politician had been found uh, doing this, they would have resigned immediately. Okay. And it would have been a huge scandal. Okay, so, Prince, yeah. Prince, Prince Charles Charity, of course, is saying that, hey, you know, we did our due diligence here. This family has disowned Osama bin Laden a long time ago. Osama bin Laden's brothers, th- there have been no known ties by his brothers to any terrorism activities. They're not in any counter-terror watch list or sanction list. So, you know, we didn't break any laws here by accepting this million-pound donation to Prince Charles's charity, but... A lot of analysts like yourself are pointing out that, man, oh, man, this, does, this is, doesn't look good at the very least. Let me play a comment here from you for you for your thoughts, Tom. This is royal commentator and analyst Tim Ewart speaking about this. Have a listen. It's a bad look for Prince Charles. The Charity Commission, which is the supervisory body of charities in this country, has basically said there's been no wrongdoing. But from the public's point of view, I'm afraid this is just another case of members of the royal family taking money from unsavory sources. Right. And you already touched a bit on that, Tom, some of the earlier examples that we've seen. I mean, I take your point that You know, you represent an organization that thinks Canada should drop the monarchy and Canada should become a republic. And and really the behavior of individual royals doesn't really factor into that. But when you take a look at the institution as a whole, like what how why would you argue that it's time to drop it right now? Well, for the reasons I've mentioned, but uh, let me point out that monarchists love to argue that a British royal 
is more trustworthy, trustworthy as our head of state than a democratically selected Canadian, supposedly because they'd be immune from corruption. Uh, you know, this just sends the wrong signal. And I'm sure monarchists are, uh, are just uh, livid about this. Uh, if I were a monarchist, I would, because it, it, it flies in the face of, of, of the credibility of the royals and, and the fact that, that they're supposed to have better sense than this. This is just bad optics. And, and let me point out, it doesn't matter whether this family has blood relations to Osama bin Laden. They have very, very high connections to the Saudi royal family. This is an oppressive, absolute monarchy that has little regard for the rights of women. They, they oppress their people. They're conducting a, a brutal war. Uh, at best, Britain and Canada should have very basic diplomatic relations with the Saudis and nothing else. Uh, the, the whole argument that Prince Charles has better judgment than any politician, this, this proves that it's bogus. Had Speaking any politician been involved in this, they would have been either uh, fired or they, or they would have resigned. But for Prince Charles, the royal PR machine will sweep this under the rug and spread uh, the blame to some poor minion, and Prince Charles will carry on. Yeah, I'm sure that the there will be no official reaction from the royal family on this for sure. Speaking to Tom Freda, Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Tom, let me play a clip here for you from your friend uh, Bruce Halzer from the Monarchist League of Canada. And here he is making the case for the monarchy. Let's have a listen and we'll get your thoughts. I don't think Canadians feel put upon by our constitutional arrangements. We're, we're a free society, we're a democracy, and we're one of the best places in the world to live. And we've always been a monarchy, and that's a big part of yeah. uh, how we became such a great country, I think. Okay, so he argues that Canada is great, a great country, largely because of the monarchy. What do you say? I'm not going to argue on the relevance of the monarchy's role in how Canada has evolved today. Uh, we don't make an issue out of the past. We make an issue out of the future. And it just doesn't make sense for Canada to have a head of state who lives on another continent, is chosen exclusively, exclusively by birth from one family, and above anything else that you can name, represents colonialism and our colonial ties to Britain, which we do not have anymore. There is no more British Empire regardless of what people think of the royals, good or bad, uh, Britain can have them. Canada is an independent country, and as long as we can't independently choose our own head of state from a Canadian person who lives here, we're not fully independent. And if people are okay with that, then fine. But opinion polls show that most Canadians are not. Either they want to get rid of the monarchy or they don't care one way or the other. It's only... Mr. Halsey and a, a small percentage of about 20 to 23 percent of Canadians who really think the monarchy is worth keeping. The rest of us, not so much. We want to move on and have Canada evolve. Speaking of opinion polls, Tom, I was checking out a, a poll in the United Kingdom here this morning. Do you think it would make any difference if Prince William became the next king instead of Charles? Because I'm looking at this out of the UK. It says 50% of British people want Prince Charles to step aside and make way for his son, Prince William, to be king 
after Queen Elizabeth. Now, Charles, of course, first in line to the throne, so he would get the job automatically after Queen Elizabeth, unless he stepped aside and said, okay, you know, I'm going to retire, and my son William can wear the crown instead. Uh, Only a, a much smaller percentage of British people actually want Charles to be king. Does that make any difference? Uh, not to our organization. We don't think any royal, like I say, good or bad, is appropriate for Canada in the 21st century. Um, but just think of this for a moment. Yeah. Here we have an opinion poll where people are asked their opinion on who should be their head of state. That's a democratic principle. What the British people are being asked here is who, what their choice is for head of state, who they want. With monarchy, you don't get a choice. You get the person who's next in line, whether you like it or not, whether they're a jerk or whether they're a saint, you get them, and it doesn't matter. That's the rules of succession. The fact that the Britons are being asked what their preference is and what their choice is, that's a democratic principle, and that shows that Britons are are just like Canadians and believe that democracy trumps uh, hereditary rule, and it's most important here to remember that the, the, the basics of our organization have their roots in Britain. Modern republicanism was born in Britain with Thomas Paine and mm. uh, the Republican revolts for the, uh, in the last 200 years. All of those contributed to making Britain's monarchy a constitutional monarchy, which constitutional experts all recognize as a crowned republic. A crowned republic is uh, basically, uh, uh, supposedly, uh, a government where the royals are supposed to take a back seat. They sit back and do ceremonial things. In Canada, our governor general does that. That is the definition of a parliamentary president. We want to make it official. That's all. All right, Tom, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk now about the campaign to limit and ban nuclear weapons in the world. It is a critical week on this issue. World leaders are meeting at the United Nations in New York to begin the first review of the UN Non-Proliferation Treaty in years. This review comes at a crucial time for global security, especially, of course, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine amid threats of nuclear weapon use. I've got Beatrice Finn standing by from the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. First, let's have a listen to the Secretary General of the United Nations here, Antonio Guterres, talking about nuclear weapons. Have a listen to this. Humanity is in danger of forgetting the lessons forged in the terrifying fires of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Geopolitical tensions are reaching new highs. Competition is trumping cooperation and collaboration. Distrust has replaced dialogue and disunity has replaced disarmament. States are seeking false security in stockpiling and spending hundreds of billions of dollars on doomsday weapons that have no place on our planet. All right, that's the Secretary General of the UN speaking this week. Let's discuss this important issue now with my guest, Beatrice Finn, Executive Director of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Beatrice, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. 
Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. How uh, how important is this meeting at the UN right now? What is on the line here? It's really important because this uh, treaty that we're meeting here in New York, I'm just outside the UN right now, um, to review is really kind of the one of the cornerstones of international security. It has this agreement that all countries in the world agreed to not develop nuclear weapons in exchange for the five that already had nuclear weapons at that time when they agreed it. Uh, to they promised to disarm the nuclear weapons. But now we've, of course, seen that they're not fulfilling that commitment. They're not disarming. And in fact, one of them, Russia, has used nuclear weapons threats to kind of enable an illegal invention, invasion of another non-nuclear weapon state, Ukraine. Um, really putting this whole kind of bargain at jeopardy. And well, if we don't really take this seriously, we might kind of lose this treaty and end up with a lot of proliferation of new nuclear weapon states. How many countries in the world have nuclear weapons right now? Well, right now there's nine nuclear weapon states. Uh, so we have the five in this treaty, which is usually called the five recognized nuclear weapon states. It's the U.S., U.K., France, Russia, and China. But we also have outside the treaty India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. So in total, there are nine countries that have nuclear weapons. Right. I always heard that Israel, I guess, had never officially acknowledge that they have nukes mm. though right but do we know for sure exactly. israel has israel for we, sure though we know yeah, they have, we, they've got we nukes know, we know they haven't confirmed or denied it it's their policy to not comment on it but it's an open secret everyone knows that israel has nuclear weapons yeah yeah and how destructive are are these weapons today well, they are massively destructive and, you know, humanity-threatening if we talk about a full-scale nuclear war. Um, yeah. You know, there's been a lot of talk about using small tactical nuclear weapons by Russia and Ukraine. But we have to remember the scale of these things, that today's standard of nuclear weapons is so enormous that the smallest of Russian small nuclear weapons uh, is the same size as Hiroshima. That's a small mini nuclear bomb in today's standard. And that bomb in Hiroshima killed over 140,000 um, within a couple of months after it's been used. So it's really, we're talking about such enormous destruction of firestorms, radiation, um, the heat kind of vaporizing anything flammable. So it's, it's really an unimaginable suffering that we're talking about here. And that's why it's so important that we, we stop it from happening. Speaking of Beatrice Finn, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Uh, the meeting's happening this week at the United Nations in New York City. Let's listen to another clip here of the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, speaking on this topic this week. Let's have a listen and I'll get, get your thoughts. Almost 13,000 nuclear weapons are now being held in arsenals around the world. All these at a time when the risks of proliferation are growing and guardrails to prevent escalation are weakening. Today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. We need the treaty of non-proliferation of nuclear weapons as much as ever. Okay, the United Nations Secretary General there talking about 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world today. Is that an accurate number there, Beatrice, right now? Yeah, that's about the estimate that we know. And, you know, as I said, you know, the one bomb in Hiroshima killed 140,000 people. So you can imagine yeah. what 13,000 nuclear weapons could do to the planet and to humanity uh, everywhere, really. Yeah, and you heard the uh, the UN Secretary General there is talking about one misunderstanding away mm. from annihilation. I mean, 
you know, that's a, a terrifying thought. How how likely is something like that, like a, a nuclear weapon being set off accidentally or or through some sort of diplomatic misunderstanding? Like, how possible is that? Well, it's, you know, this is really what keeps me up at night. Uh, the, the thought that something can go wrong. Uh, of course, we do have the possibility of these leaders intentionally starting nuclear war. We can't rule that out. Yeah. And we've seen with Putin, we've seen with Kim Jong-un, or also the United States used to in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the past. So, of course, that can still happen. But what is also really worrying is this kind of, in a very tense kind of international situation, misunderstandings, miscalculations, pure access. We've had in history many near misses, uh, not just Cuba, missile crisis, we were very close, but also kind of false information like, uh, you know, in the Soviets, they thought they were having incoming missiles. Stanislav Petro was a, a Soviet soldier who is known to like have saved the world because he kind of didn't believe the incoming data. Uh, and it turns out that it was a mistake. Uh, we saw this a few years ago in Hawaii, a false alarm going out to people's cell phones saying, take cover, incoming missile. So you've had these mistakes yeah. happening in the past. And it, it, the longer we keep these weapons around, the more likely it is that it's going to happen. What do you think of the, the argument that of nuclear deterrence, that nuclear weapons are, have actually promoted peace on the planet since they were developed. We haven't had another world war uh, be, uh, because of the, the threat of, of nuclear weapons always always being there, like that, that theory of mutually assured destruction, that these weapons would never be actually used or launched because whoever uh, uses them would quickly be annihilated by a counterattack, and that the threat of that has prevented... Uh, large-scale wars. What do you think of that argument? Well, there's no real evidence, scientifically proven evidence, that actually is the case. There could be a lot of other, you know, things in, in the international society that, that have contributed to avoiding world wars. Uh, but it also, you know, it, you only need one mistake. And the consequences are yeah. so grave. I mean, it's humanity ending that you're putting a lot of trust in something that is not much more than like a, almost a religious belief in the terror. There's no evidence that it actually works. And what's more dangerous is that that strategy completely relies on the leaders of nuclear arms states to always be rational, always behave with you know, people's interests at heart. And looking at Kim Jong-un, uh, Putin, you know, us putting our entire security in their hands and just hoping that they will always do the right thing, to me, it's, it's stupid. It's not a sustainable yeah. strategy. Uh, it, you know, the consequences of nuclear weapons use are so grave that if something goes wrong, we have no protection. There's no way any humanitarian organization, doctors, or anyone can help after a detonation in that way. So it's, you know, the risks really outweigh these kind of perceived benefits of deterrence, according to me. Speaking of Beatrice Finn, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Is that possible to abolish these weapons on the planet, given that there are so many countries that have them now? You just you ran down the list. 13,000 nuclear weapons on the planet now. Is it really possible to put you know the genie back in the bottle here and abolish these weapons? Absolutely. I mean, not only have we done it with other weapons, we've banned and eliminated chemical weapons, biological weapons, landmines, cluster munitions. It is completely possible to do that. 
but also, I think we mustn't remember, forget that the vast majority of countries in the world do not have nuclear weapons. And it's not because the technology doesn't exist. They, they know how to. I mean, nuclear energy exists in many, many countries. They can make the bombs if they want to, but because they don't think it's in the security. So it's like over 180 countries that do not have nuclear weapons. And so that's actually the standard. That's the norm. And thanks to, to the work that many governments and also ICANN, my organization has done, and what we were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for in 2017, was a new treaty called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So since last year, the nuclear weapons are actually banned under international law. So we are making progress on this issue. And we have come down from the 80,000 nuclear weapons that were existed in the 80s. So we are, wow. you know, there is definitely possible to do something. But right now, we also need countries like Canada to step it up and, and join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons to really push the, the nine remaining states to disarm. Okay, well, that's an interesting thought on Canada's role here. And so you think Canada should be pressuring allies like the United States to well, get rid of their exactly. nukes? Yeah. Exactly. I think the countries like Canada, we know that they play a big, important role in really shaping what is acceptable behavior in the international arena. So here Canada could play an extremely important role by banning nuclear weapons and, and pushing Russia, China, the U.S., North Korea to disarm. Right, but is that, I, I'm just wondering if that's even politically feasible for the United States, for example, to unilaterally disarm or give up nuclear weapons if, if other countries are not going to do it. Like if, if Russia is still going to have their nukes, China will have nukes, North Korea... Like, why would the United States give up their weapons if these other countries still have them? Well, you don't have to do it unilaterally. The way that we disarm, for example, chemical weapons have been through this kind of treaty that bans the weapon and then creates a, a, a staged process for eliminating them together in a very verifiable and monitored way. So it's definitely possible. And they have done this massive disarmament since the 1980s, where they came yeah. down from these enormous numbers. And they've done that transparently and verifiably uh, with sort of, despite being sort of enemies between the U.S. and Soviet at that time, for example, they did have the processes in place. So it is possible. Um, it doesn't have to be unilateral. It can be in a mutually sort of negotiated process together with the other new ground states. But what is really important now is that you put sort of, you, you pull out your chair at the table and say, hey, I'm here, I'm ready to negotiate. And Canada could play a massive role there in really encouraging that. Okay, last question for you. It's a big week on this issue, of course, with the United Nations meetings going on on the UN Non-Proliferation Treaty. And I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to talk to us with such a busy week for you. Like, can you just comment generally on like, what this treaty is, what it does, and, and what do you think needs to come out of this review? So the treaty, uh, it's sort of this big agreement between all the nations in the world that those that didn't have nuclear weapons by 1970 agreed to not develop them. And those that had right. nuclear weapons by 1970, the five ones, agreed to disarm them. But it's kind of like the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, this treaty. It has that goal, but it doesn't specify how and when and which pace. So it's quite easy for these five states to just like, uh, not right now. We're not going to do it now. We're doing it next, next time, next five years, for example. Um, so they've been postponing and postponing and postponing. And now with the invasion of Ukraine, it's really coming to kind of a collision almost that if they don't start, you know, making progress on nuclear disarmament and making some commitments here, 
concrete commitments, not just rhetoric and empty words and blah, 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 but really concrete steps to disarm. Uh, other governments might say, hey, uh, this is not working for us anymore. We're going to start developing new weapons ourselves now. So it's really a, a high stakes meeting here. All right. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, thank you for having me.